morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 13. So those of you who've been following along, reading in T. Wright, and some of you are overachievers, and you've, and you've went and bought or looked up William Barclay's uh, uh, writing around the, the gospel of Luke, you'll be following right, right along with us today. Uh, Karen and I are so glad to be with you. We have returned to that routine that was pre-COVID to where we're being blessed with opportunities to go and do things and talk to people and encourage people and bring hope. And, and all of those things are so exciting. And it's always good to be with you. It is especially good to be with our community of left field back there that uh, always... Uh, ask and and talk to us and just encourage us. And so we're really thankful just to get to be with you this morning. So we were getting ready. We were about to get in the car to leave. And I said, Haley, I'm preaching this morning. Are you going to come in and listen? She says, Dad, I listen to you talk all day. So uh, she's in the nursery this morning, and uh, I hope I haven't worn that thin with you already, but we're going to try to jump into here. Uh, Adrian and I were talking a little bit this morning about how uh, Brian somehow manipulated the schedule to get Shade to move when we're teaching through Luke 12 and 13. And he's going to make this miraculous reappearance when we get to talk about the prodigal son. And I'm thinking, hmm, senior pastor, head preacher, whatever you want to call him, he's pulling some some power on us here. But we're going to try to dig into 13, and, uh, and hopefully it has some teaching for you. One of the things that I have found, and, and I've heard it said thousands of times in my life, is that when, when we read scripture, we don't really read it. It reads us. And, and as we dig into a section like this one, I found it as I read it over and over again, that it was really reading me. Uh, if you know me at all, you know that I'm really not much of a challenger personality. I don't really get into anybody's face. I, I'm more of a, I wonder if, or have you ever thought about kind of a person, not a, let me tell you how this is kind of person. I, it's just not in me. And so Brian gives me this text where Jesus steadily challenges people. And he asked me to do the same. And so we're going to jump in to this this morning. He starts with a fig tree. And N.T. Wright says that we could see Jesus either as the master or as the worker. And either one would be fine. He could either be the master who is looking for the fruit of repentance and finding little to none. Even in the places where he's done some of his greatest work, his largest miracles, and yet there's little repentance. And this is the last chance. Or you could see him as the gardener who is begging the master's patience for just one more season, going into an intensive care type do or die mode with those who might listen.
And I wonder what he's saying to us. This beautiful fig tree, this awesome body. And where's our fruit? Are we bringing the fruit that he's intended for us? But that's not the first challenge I really want to look at this morning. The first one I want to look at begins in verse 10. And Jesus, I think, is asking us the question, are we committed to the rules and the doctrines? Or are we committed to people? Karen and I had this friend couple when we were living in Lubbock. And they were great friends of ours. And we did tons of things together. And this particular night, they had invited us over to her parents' house who lived in Lubbock. And they had this really nice house. It was game seven of the NBA Finals, Los Angeles Lakers versus the Detroit Pistons. Long time ago, another century ago, actually. But it was game seven. They invited us over. We said, oh, that'll be great. Karen doesn't care about the game, but Randy and I do. And we get to the front door and they open it. Welcome here. And then she says, would you mind taking your shoes off? My parents don't like dirt getting in the house. All right, sure. I don't take my shoes off for anybody, but okay. We don't want to blow it right here, I don't guess. So, so take shoes off. We come in. And uh, then we're going to eat. Well, never mind that the game is starting in about 10 minutes because I'm thinking we're going to fix a plate, sit on the couch, watch the game, and eat. But uh, no, we don't take food in the living room. Because the living room has white carpet and we don't take chances like that. And I'm getting a little anxious because the game's going to start, but I like to eat too, so I eat pretty quick. And we start to make our move after the game has started into the living room. And I quickly notice that there are no coasters on the end tables or the coffee table. Surely, now... We don't take our drinks in there. So I guess we're supposed to wait and at timeouts, go back to the kitchen table, get your cup, get a drink, and then come back. And the answer to that question is yes, that is correct. And what I quickly learned is that there is no living going on in this living room. On this Sabbath day, Jesus sees a woman who's been crippled for 18 years in the synagogue and he calls her over and he touches and he heals her. And one would think, what an incredible gift, what an incredible thing to get to witness and experience. What an encouragement to leave the synagogue with that day and you would say yes except for everyone but the synagogue leader and those who were like him. The scripture says that when he saw what had happened, that he was indignant. There are six days for working. And I hear him saying, Jesus, why don't you come on those days? Why do you choose this day to come? And I can hear him looking at the woman who's been bent over for 18 years going, it's been 18 years, couldn't it wait one more day? 
I wonder, can you imagine this morning having a hungry person approach you as you leave the building this morning? And can you imagine telling that person, hey, hey, Misty will be here tomorrow. Make an appointment and she'll make sure you get fed tomorrow. Jesus responds quite differently. In Jesus' mind, 18 years was way too long and one more day was not okay. Jesus said, I can do something about this right now and I'm going to. Now, I'm not in any position to say that that leader and many like him don't love rules more than people. And I'm not saying that he didn't have any compassion for this lady. It's just that when the rules met the person, the rules won. And I wonder, how does that rules versus people challenge sit with us? And I'm really afraid that for most of us, that as soon as our identity starts to shape and mold in the way of doing right and following rules equals identity, we start to risk being that guy. And, and before you start to dismiss that story of that's not me, I want you to check yourself. I just wonder if there aren't some spaces for all of us that where there's a rule or a belief or a tradition that when it's challenged, we hold on to it at the expense of people. Let me ask it this way. If you're a church person, you've heard of the slippery slope. Now, if you're not a church person, you may not know what it means, but it goes something like this, that, Brian, you better not do that because if you do, somebody might take it a little bit further and before you know, we're going to have no idea where it might end up. So, so don't give that guy who comes to your door on Tuesday $10 for gas when you don't know if he needs gas or not because he might just come back again tomorrow. He might get used to it and he might start to depend on it. What if we just showed that person Jesus and let the Lord worry about what happens next? When I was in school at Texas Tech, I was a part of this very spiritual group called the Saddle Tramps. Um, um, it was a classy bunch. One of the best things we did was took kids from Buckner Baptist Children's Home to every Tech home football and basketball game. And I remember one time it being my turn and, and a buddy of mine and I had taken four 
uh, young men from the children's home to a tech football game. And uh, the next day was Sunday. I, I was talking to a church person about that experience. And she said, that's nice. She said, I just wish they would teach those kids the truth. And I was confused. Now, it could have been that taking these kids to Texas Tech football games was a little cruel and unusual, but I don't think that's what she was talking about. I do remember thinking, what am I missing? Because I thought that Jesus' list was caring for orphans and feeding the hungry and clothing those who were in need. thought they'd covered that list pretty well. Come to find out there was another list. That piano and organ and choir and the woman singing the solo was just ruining everything about serving these children. This is not the only occasion in the three years that Jesus spent in ministry, but every time I see it coming down to a rule or a person, I see Jesus choosing the person. So can I just challenge us to stop worrying about the rules? Can I challenge us to just stop worrying about things that Jesus never worried about and just love people? There are people bent over all around us. Have you noticed? They're everywhere. And what they need to see is Jesus. And you may very well be their best shot. Will you show them a rule or a teaching? Or will you show them a person who loves them? Then Jesus goes on to this teaching about a mustard seed. And and our resident scholar, William Barclay, points out that Matthew focuses on this story as well. But he focuses on the size of the seed, where Luke doesn't point it out at all. Luke is the gospel writer who dreams of this whole world that belongs to Jesus. And just like birds from all over would come and make homes in this mustard seed, uh, mustard tree when it was fully grown. People from all over the world, from all different places, would come to make their home and to get their protection and their safety and their identity in Jesus. And if we look at it from there, are we like the mustard seed? Are we that place as the Southwest Church where people can come from anywhere, from all kinds of experience and all kinds of background and belief and find a home and find safety? In the kingdom of Jesus, there's room for everyone. 
all kinds of folks. If you want a little glimpse of that, if you want to see a beautiful and crazy example of that, I would encourage you to come to Karen's Wednesday night class of about 100 people with special needs right back here. You might peek through the window because we're sort of at capacity. And if there's a fire person here, please don't call your boss, okay? Uh, We do our best to uh, keep the exits open. How is that? But there's 100 people who come in all different shapes and sizes and abilities and ethnicities and church backgrounds. And no one in that room cares. And I would encourage you, if you wonder how encouraging it is, to talk to John or Steve or Mike and ask them what it's like to be prayed for by a Lashonda or a Tanya or a Kenneth before they teach class. And please, please don't minimize the experience because this group has intellectual disabilities. To actually live the faith that Jesus held up as our model. And that is childlike and simple. They just love because he did. There's room for everyone. There's also room for a wide variety of experiences. I believe we do so much harm to the kingdom when we try to standardize the experience of the moving of the Holy Spirit into things that we are comfortable with. You know, it's interesting to me that one of the last things Jesus told his disciples disciples was that it was good for him to go because the one coming would be even better. And that they would do things bigger and greater than he ever did. In 2022, could we still leave the door open to that happening here? in ways we don't understand and don't make sense to us, but that the Spirit of God is totally capable of? Could we do that? And there's room for a wide variety of worship. You know, it's awesome when we find a style of worship that connects to us. And I love our style But if we're honest, it's pretty, I know we're in the 21st century, but it's a pretty 20th century Anglo-Saxon, white, middle-class style of worship. And again, I love it. But it can't be the only way. When Karen and I have the opportunity to go to Lima, Peru, and we attend the Camina de Vida Church. They, they put their guests of honor, which uh, they can't read our bios in English, so they still treat us as people of honor. They always set their guests of honor right by the drums. (laughs) 
We can't hear a thing, which is fine because we don't understand a word that they're saying because it's in Spanish and it's beautiful. And these people are worshiping like crazy. I think it grieves the Spirit of God when we think we've found the only way and we try to bind it on others. Most of us know how Paul said it. We just don't like it when it doesn't fit our style. When he says in the New Living Translation, I try to find common ground with everyone and do everything I can to save some. Maybe we could be a little more flexible. The last challenge I want to look at this morning is the challenge of finding salvation. And we'll start in verse 23. What I want us to hear today is that there aren't nearly as many restrictions as I think some would place on salvation. And I'll also tell you that I don't think there are nearly as many options as others would like. In verse 23, someone asked him, Lord, will only a few be saved? And he replied, work hard to enter the narrow door to God's kingdom. For many will try, but many will fail. I've heard this teaching all my life. And I think I heard it wrong most of my life. Surely we know the impossibility of the getting it right doctrine. Surely we know that by now. And the despair that it produces that has quite frankly driven a great part of the world away from churches. Not because they're not interested in Jesus, but because they can't get to Jesus through the other stuff. There's no life in that gospel. And while we know that it's not about working our way into it, Jesus does use this really crazy word. He says, strive. Strive. It means to agonize, Barclay says. And and. I'm just telling you, if you're not feeling the agony of trying to live a Christ-like life in 21st century America, you're not getting out much. And if you are getting out into it and you're really living out your faith, I think you can own that there's an experience there that's challenging and it's tough. Karen and I spend most of our life in the mental health world and talking with people and encouraging people and trying to point them to life and to hope and to help. And what I can tell you is that everyone, everyone is trying to find this gate. There's not a person on the planet that doesn't want this gate because this gate opens the door to the very things that every human being is searching for. And those things are peace, 
hope, joy, and love. And I am afraid that few will enter it. But it won't be because their doctrine is poor or their theology is off or their worship style was bad. It will be because they chose something or someone other than Jesus to follow, to find it. He's our only shot. And if that seems narrow-minded to some, I just beg you to take a look at the track record of all the other things that we have tried to follow to try and find life. And I will tell you, they're all batting zero. Counseling offices all over the country, including mine, are filled with people who are trying to clean up the wreckage from looking for something to give them life and hope other than Jesus. One thing we probably all agree on, I had to look at the clock and obviously my trifocals aren't great because one thing we can all agree on, the world we live in continues to erode further and further from the Garden of Eden. Could we agree on that? And the further we get from there, the more desperate the search comes for identity, meaning, and value. And before we interrupt with this idea that these folks just need to get back to church, let me stop you because most of them have tried it. And if they didn't try it, their parents tried it. And what they found were no answers that were relevant to the questions they were asking. And so to try to give them the same answers that didn't work a generation ago just seems to be like wasted time to me. What people are asking today is, do I matter? Am I safe? Am I significant? And honestly, the truth is, is that for most of the world, the answer is no, you don't. This may shock you, Drew, but I did a little math on Friday with a calculator because hoping to get it right. Uh, But according to Siri, I even Googled, which is a stretch for my technological abilities. But I asked Siri how many people there are on the planet. And she tells me that in November 2021, there were 7.9 billion people. So from there I went and I looked at my Twitter account coming to find that I'd had a couple of people follow me to put me up to 188 followers. So this is where my math skills came in. That means that point zero 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 two point, uh, 2.4% of the world follow me. Okay? <laughs> if I got my zeros right, there's seven zeros, by the way. I think that's 24 one 
hundred millionths of a percent of the world. Follow me. So I thought, well, let me think of somebody that more people might know. So I didn't go to Elon Musk because he's about to buy Twitter, so everybody has to follow him, so his number was big. But most of you have probably heard of Elon Musk. I'm sorry, Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos, the owner of Amazon. Some of, most of you probably bought something from him this week. And he has 4.4 million followers. Man, that's a bunch, right? To the population of the world, that equates to 0.00055696.2% of the world, or roughly five ten thousandths of one percent now i'm no math whiz and i'm not completely sure but i think the difference between his 4.4 million and my 188 compared to the population of the world is roughly the equivalent of a rounding error the point is In a world where everybody seems to be looking for their 10 minutes of fame. What if we looked for a life of meaning? If I could have everybody move to their spaces as we wrap this up. We watch every day people just desperately wanting to belong and fit and matter and find significance and safety and believe that we're valuable. What we're looking for is to be chosen. And we're looking in all kinds of places. We look at a job. We look in an income. We look in a relationship or a bottle or a pill or a different identity or a website or another relationship. We're all just trying to find that gate. And Jesus himself says it's narrow. And he also says it's not your heritage, it's not your doctrine, it's not your family tree or your status that will either get you to it or through it. It's him. He says it's me. He says I am the way and the truth and the life. And he says the thief came to steal and to kill and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and life to the full. He's the one who says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But let's be clear, it's his burden. And to choose anyone else, we know the weight of that because we've all carried it in one way or another. And for all of those great promises he gives us, he then says, I choose you for God so loved the world 
that he gave his only son. That anyone who believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. And he doesn't care that you're a mess because we're all a mess. He says, God demonstrated his love for us in this and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know what amazes me the most about all of that stuff? Is that when I talk to people who claim they believe and I, and I ask them who loves you, and they almost always leave out God, and I say, well, what about God? And they will look at me and say, yeah, but he has to. And it takes all the power. As if he had to. The God of the universe says he loves you. The God of the universe says you are so valuable to me that I allowed my son to die for you. If you're here, I want to encourage you. Obviously, you're here. I want to encourage you. Some things just, yeah. There are people around every single one of you who need Jesus. Will you see them? And will you show him to them? And if you're a person who is here this morning and needs another touch from Jesus, would you let us be him for you today while we sing?